Hello, everybody. This is Here for Sports. I'm Elizabeth Emery, host of the podcast. Joining me today is former gymnast Rachel Haynes. She was a two-time member of the U.S. Women's Gymnastics Team, two-time national champion, and Division I college gymnast at University of Minnesota, where she studied child psychology and earned a master's degree in family social science. She's come out with her new memoir titled Abused, about her time as a gymnast and as Survivor 195 in the Larry Nassar case. In her book, she writes in detail about breaking her back in three places and everything she did to stay in the sport after that. But mostly, Rachel uses the lens of her psychology training to dissect her time in the sport. She focuses on the culture of gymnastics, being a driven teenager, her own process of healing, forgiving, moving on, and creating a great life after sport. Rachel is now coaching young gymnasts and has been able to implement her own ideas about improving the sport. It was really fun to talk to her about what she's learned and about balancing being a strong competitor, safety, and a focus on the process of improving and becoming a good person. As always, it's an honor to introduce this week's guest, so let's get to it. Welcome, Rachel. I really appreciate you being here on the podcast. Yes, thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Well, your book is completely fascinating, and it's open and honest. How did writing it come about? Yeah, I actually like t- telling this story quite a lot because it's so strange how it started. It was it was just a journal. Um, about two years ago, when everything started surfacing about Larry and the accusations started coming up and flooding my feed, I started just feeling really overwhelmed with the emotions that I was having. Obviously, it was it was feelings that I had never dealt with before. Um, and so I was trying to learn how to cope with them and, and, and get them out because I felt trapped in my own head. And at the time, I was actually completing my master's program, which was in counseling. And so I was learning all of these coping and therapy methods. And one of them was journaling and getting your thoughts out on paper that way. And so that's what I started doing. I started um, writing how I was feeling and trying to figure out where it all started. I think one of the first questions victims ask is, why me? Why did this happen to me? What did I do wrong? And, and that type of thing. And so that's what I was, I was going through myself. And so my journal turned into this reflective writing about why it was so easy for me to be manipulated into being a victim. And so it, it kind of turned into this reflection on the culture of the sport and how I was shaped starting as young as like six or seven. And so it was becoming more of that. And one of my closest friends, she's actually going to be my sister-in-law come May, read it with me. And she was just kind of helping me through everything. And she goes, Rachel, you need to make this a book like this. You need to publish this. This is inspiring and empowering. And I think it can impact your readers. So she actually became my editor and publicist. And she's shaped my journal into this beautiful book that I am so satisfied with and it it's just kind of blown me away and I'm still surprised by it I really hope and pray that others find as inspiring and empowering as she did and impactful so um but as of right now I'm I'm really really satisfied with how it turned out yeah it's really beautiful so what are the goals for the book you you sort of hinted at it but yeah yeah and it's it's funny so I actually just did a vision board um with my goals about the book and my main, I guess even purpose for the book was to just inspire one person and inspire is a broad term, but if that means comforting them, then great. That's what I want. But if it also means 
giving one person the empowered feeling to use their voice, to stand up against their abuser, to even come forward as a victim, that's all I want. I don't need it to become this huge, huge thing. I just want it to inspire one. And I don't care what kind of inspire that is. I just want one person to read it and feel empowered and feel comforted um, because being a victim is so much harder than what people can imagine. I, I imagine that more than one person is going to be inspired. <laughs> I hope so. I really, really hope so. <laughs> yeah. Um, so after writing the book and with a little bit of distance on competing in gymnastics, yeah. what stands out for you in your story? Uh, seeing, so it's actually interesting that I could see my own healing as my writing progressed. I obviously started started the first chapters first so when I was younger and I was mad I was I was mad at the way I was manipulated at a young age I was mad at Larry I was mad at myself um and I saw my own healing through the book and every time I read it I can see it more and more and I can even feel it when I'm reading the chapters that I wrote early on I'm like oh I'm so angry and I'm not anymore I was so hurt and I'm not anymore and seeing that means a lot to me. It's, it's almost empowering to myself and my own healing process is, is to be able to see that progression toward being better, progression toward kind of that forgiveness and moving forward type thing. Um, and I hope others can see that too when they read it is that by the end, I'm like, okay, moving on, next steps. Um, life, life carries on if we're ready for it or not. So um, I hope others can see that too. Well, you know, it's interesting. You jumped right to the ending. And that really struck me was the ending yeah. of your book and, you know, your ability to heal. I mean, that part of your story is so amazing. It's amazing to be able to forgive and it's amazing to be able to mm -hmm. accept both the good and the bad of your sport. Mm -hmm. I got a lot from that chapter. So how did you manage okay. being able to forgive? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it's funny. Like, this is the part that I start tearing up thinking about. It, it, was, a, it was a very hard Thing to do. I mean, people can throw around the word, I forgive you, but to actually mean it takes a lot and it's draining and exhausting. Um, but my, my story kind of started with the trial when I was, so I'm in Minnesota and the trial was obviously happening in Michigan. And so I was kind of watching it from afar. And you have to remember all of these, these women are close friends of mine. I, they were teammates. They were competitors with me. I used to see them at competitions. Um, some of them I traveled to different countries with. Um, and so it was just that alone was exhausting seeing them and seeing their hurt and their pain and their anger come out and their impact statements to Larry. I remember just sitting in my office with my earphones and listening to all of them, just feeling exhausted. And I decided after the first day, um, like so many other women, I was like, okay, I want, I want to speak to Larry. I need my closure with him. Um, and I think this impact statement is the way to do it. And so I wrote up a, a rough draft of it. I was like, this is what I want to say. Um, I think this will give me closure. And I sent it to my sister and she read it and she goes, do you feel better? Does this, does this statement give you the closure that you need to start healing? And I read it and I was like, no, this is, this isn't what I need. It's not working. Every time I read it, I just feel angry and hurt and that same exhaustion that I felt hearing all of the other women's statements. And so I was like, what, 
what do I need? And she was like, you can send me as many rough drafts as you need, but I'm always here to listen and I'm only trying to help you heal. And so then I called my parents <laughs> to see um, what kind of suggestions they could offer because they are the obviously the smartest people that I know. And so um, I talked to my dad for the longest and he and, and my mom have both had to do their own healing and their own forgiveness because being a parent of a victim is no, no easier. <laughs> and so my dad was talking to me and he's like, Rachel, I turned to my faith to help me move past this because I want, I want, I wanted to kill Larry. I wanted to hurt him. He hurt my little girl. And, it, and I'm sure I feel the same way as every father of those little girls do. And so he was like, I had to turn to my faith. And he asked me if I had turned to my faith. And I was like, I, I haven't. I'm still so angry. I'm still so why me? Um, that type of thing. And he goes, he goes well, the next, the next statement you write, I want you to, to turn to your faith and see, see if that helps. Try that. And so I did. And as I started writing that draft, I started seeing almost this forgiveness forming. Almost this, I can't hold this grudge against you forever. I, with my goals for healing... I need to forgive you. I just started pulling out Bible verses of this makes me want to forgive you. This makes me realize I have to forgive you. Um, and that, that last draft I wrote, I was like, I would read it and I would feel better and I would feel stronger. And I read it to my sister and she was like, do you feel like your healing has started? And I said, yes. But unfortunately, I could not read my statement in front of Larry. I was not that strong enough yet. So my parents actually read it for me. And so I remember sitting in my office the day that my statement was going to be read by my parents. And I had my headphones in and my head was down. And um, my parents had asked to remain anonymous to respect me and, and kind of respect them as well. And so I remember when they said victim 195 is about to read her statement She's asked to remain anonymous and the camera's turned off, the microphone's turned off and the camera turns to Larry and all I see is Larry. There's no sound. Um, I can't see my parents, but I know my statement is being read and I see him react and I don't know what words he's reacting to, but I just, I could feel him almost understand that I had already started healing because I had forgiven him and he knew that process was was difficult and I so and so I think at that point he he broke a little and it was hard to watch but it's so much easier to move on when you can forgive than it is to just hold on to that anger and that grudge and carry that with you forever mm -hmm. yeah well obviously the your memoir your book is about the Larry Nasser case and the abuse but it started with your back injury, which really blew yeah. me. Which really blew me away. Can you <laughs> can you describe that injury and maybe what happened? And oh my gosh, how you manage that? How you manage that pain? It's so funny when when I tell people this story, they get they get stuck on the back, and I'm like, oh, that's nothing. <laughs> um, <laughs> I guess that's the way the sport makes you, though. It's just like like pain is is nothing. But so when I was a sophomore in high school. I had started feeling kind of this gradual soreness in my back. It was just like tight muscles. We were at the peak of season. I was working really, really hard. So all my muscles were tense. If you've ever felt like a rib out of place, it felt like that, but all of my ribs and not just one. So it just felt like stiff. Um, 
it was hard to move that type of thing. And I remember waking up a Saturday morning for practice at 5 a.m. and being like, oh, my goodness, my back is so stiff. I, I can't move. I can barely breathe. Um, but off we go to practice. <laughs> and I remember my first event that day was beam. And I remember looking at this at the floor where I used to warm up my skills. And I remember thinking, if I don't warm up, that's that's a few less times that I have to move my back that can't move. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, I'm not going to warm up. I'm just going to chuck my beam routines, get them out of the way, do the least amount of numbers possible because I am in a lot of pain. And I remember getting on that beam and I, and I remember this moment clear as day, which is kind of terrifying. But um, if you're familiar with gymnastics and like the moves, a back tuck is one, one of my first skills on the beam. And so I remember swinging forward to get that momentum to push backward. And as I spent forward, it was, it was a bigger movement than what my back had done yet that day. And I did it with such force that I felt my tight muscles like basically break, break my back. I, I felt them shift it and I heard the loud crack, but once I had all that momentum going forward, I, I couldn't just stop. I mean, at that point it's more dangerous to um, not go for your skill than it is to just finish off the skill regardless of the broken back. So I remember bending forward, feeling a break. And then the next motion of a back tuck is you set up. And so your body kind of extends into this arched motion um, before you tuck your legs over. And I remember going from that bent forward movement to that arched back and feeling another shift, kind of another a break happen. And I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> so now I'm midair and this is all happening in slow motion. And I can feel both sides of my spine have snapped. And I still have to land the skill, and obviously it wasn't going to be a pretty landing, especially on a four-inch beam. So I remember finishing the flip, reaching my hands down for the beam so it wasn't all of my weight landing on my feet. Um, and I landed short anyways. But So my hands came down on the beam first, and then my feet landed, and then I just kind of tumbled off the beam. I just kind of flopped over onto the floor. I didn't even like reach my hands down. I just let kind of myself crumble to the ground. And as I did that, I felt it shift one last time and it had one last fracture when I came to the ground. And I just remember my whole body going numb and kind of getting this tunnel, tunnel vision of pain, basically. And, and I remember my coach being there in less than a second, it felt like. Um, and he had carried me over to the floor, kind of laid me down flat. And my teammate already had ice. And this kind of was all just like a blur. Obviously, I was just in a lot of pain. And they were like, Rachel, let's let's get you to the doctor. We need to get you to the hospital. We need to get an MRI, an x-ray. And I knew my body well enough. I had experienced enough broken bones to know that my back was fractured. And I was two weeks away from the most important meet of the season. And I, I couldn't let myself confirm that my back was broken. It's like it's like when you cut your finger, it doesn't hurt until you look at it and it's confirmed that, yes, it's bad. So I didn't want to see. I did not want to see that my back was broken. So I refused to get an MRI. I refused to get an x-ray. Um, my parents forced me to take a few days off practice and then my stomping my feet and bratty little teenage self refused basically to not practice. And so back to practice I went um, with a three fractured fine. <laughs> um, and I pushed through the last two meets. Go ahead. What were you going to ask? <laughs> I was going to say, did it ever occur to you that what you were doing was crazy? I mean, particularly as the injury went on and you're using icy hot and all that other stuff and not feeling oh your legs, you have to read the book. But uh, did it ever yeah. occur to you that that was just insane? It's, it's 
like now that I'm older, I'm like, oh my gosh, you idiot. <laughs> but <laughs> I remember in the moment thinking my love for this sport and competing and winning is so much greater than the pain I feel. But at the end, in, in my college career, when it was getting so bad when I couldn't even sit and go to the bathroom, that's when I started realizing, okay, what effect is this going to have on my future? Can I carry my own kids anymore? Am I going to be able to walk when I'm 30? Mm-hmm. Um, so it wasn't until the end when my brain started fully developing <laughs> that I started realizing, Rachel, you're being an idiot. You need to think about the folk, like the future. You only get one body. You only get one back. Um, it's time to be done. And I had to end up quitting early. And even though it was just a year early, it still, it was hard. It was, it's hard. I mean, I was looking through your past episodes and uh, I think it was episode 49 where it's just leaving that competition is like losing your first love. It, mm-hmm. And I had to choose that. So it's like I had to choose the breakup when I wasn't ready to. And, um, and so it's impossible. It's like basically, losing your identity. And I had to choose that. And so asking me to choose that when I'm still a high schooler is, <laughs> it was not possible. I, I was still in my own bubble. I was invincible, um, no matter how much pain I was in. So it seems idiotic. Now I'm looking back, I'm like, Oh, you're the reason I'm in so much pain. <laughs> but then it made sense. I didn't question it then. When you did start thinking more about your long-term health, how did you start to balance that or to weigh the, the your long-term health and the desire to continue? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So it's actually my my coaches had to basically slap me in the face and say, "Rachel, wake up! Like you, <laughs> <laughs> you're you're being dumb." Um, so they started like not letting me practice. So my last two full years of being a college gymnast, I didn't practice. I only competed, and that doesn't make sense to people if they weren't athletes, especially gymnasts. You need to practice. It's numbers and um, repetitions that make you a good competitor and make you a consistent competitor. People notice a difference when you go two days out of training and then compete. I mean, it just doesn't go well. Your body forgets the motions. Your muscle memory takes a hit. It's, it's the importance of flipping every single day. Otherwise, you lose it. And I wasn't. And my coaches wouldn't let me, but they would let me compete. And it was switching to more of like mental routines and doing routines that way, like visualizing. And I hated it. I was, I resented my coaches at this point, but they were looking out for my best interests and kind of making me see Rachel, you can't, you can't do it anymore. Like we are going to keep taking things away from you until you realize your body is done. Your heart and your head may not be, but your body is. And we have to pay attention to that. Well, I want to get back now to, to Larry. And I one of the things that yeah. struck me about his involvement in your injury is I had not realized how calculating he was. And with you, oh, he was, yeah, yeah with <laughs> you, he was super calculating. Yeah. Yes. Um, when I, so back to sophomore year when I first originally broke it and I finished out my season, I competed those last two meets. Um, I finally agreed to get the MRI and I saw 10 doctors who looked at my MRI and they said, Rachel, you are done. You cannot do gymnastics anymore. Do you want to be wearing a diaper when you're 25? Do you want to be able to walk? Um, and I was like, you guys, you guys aren't, you're, you're not educated. <laughs> I was such a teenager. I was, since I wasn't hearing what I wanted to hear, I wasn't listening. 
um, and my parents kept taking me to doctor after doctor, trying to get me to pay attention to what they were saying. And they thought maybe if they took me to 20 different doctors, I would start to listen, but I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to, they, nobody was going to be able to take gymnastics away from me. And so I went and saw Larry and he looked at my MRI and he said, Rachel, no doctor is going to believe in you once they see this. This is a scary back. It's, it's basically crumbling. Um, but he said, I believe in you and I believe healing is possible. Um, but you're going to have to see me. You're going to have to see me every day. You're going to have to do therapy with me every day. I'm the only person who can keep you in the sport. And from that second, I was basically his puppet. I would do whatever he asked me to do because he was the only person who would let me continue the sport that I was obsessed with. And from that moment on, I was his pet. I saw him four or five times a week. I saw him at his house. I went to Michigan State to go see him. He came to my gym to see me. It was this unbreakable relationship and obedience that I had to him because he had manipulated me to believe that he was the only person who would make my sport possible. And it's terrifying to look at now because those 10 doctors were right. I was putting myself in danger of paralysis and not being able to carry my own children, and he didn't care. All he cared about was this almost permanent subscription to his services until I was done with the sport because the way he talked to me and the way he made me think was, if you don't see me, you can't do this anymore. Mm -hmm. That power dynamic is really interesting. Uh-huh. Yeah. For you, was it simply your incredible desire to continue with gymnastics that, that allowed him to do that? He could, he could read people better than anyone I know. He was a very smart man. Nobody can deny that. Um, but he was able to read me and understand my passion and drive to continue the sport was unstoppable. I mean, he could see that the sport had become my entire identity. And if somebody tried to take that away from me, I would break. And he saw an opportunity to be the only person who could feel that drive, who could, who could, keep that as part of me and so he took advantage of it and saw this girl will trust me if I am the only person who believes in her and he ran with it mm -hmm. just absolutely ran with it right what would you have liked someone to say or do during this time that maybe could have helped you in oh. some way that's a great question and I've played the what if game so so many times and I mostly play it with myself it's not anything anybody could have said or did everybody was doing everything right um, I mean, my parents kept saying, Rachel, are we, are we sure about this? Rachel, I don't feel comfortable with this. Can, can we talk about this? And I'm, I was such a bratty teenager. Nobody was, nobody was going to change my mind. Um, but I, w what I wish I would have asked for myself was to pay attention to those red flags that I bring up in my book that I just glazed over. Why, when I was younger, did I just kind of look past those? Why didn't I pay attention to those? Why didn't I understand what was happening wasn't right? But then again, I can't blame myself because then I'm just stuck in this healing process of forever eternally blaming myself for what happened. But I really can't put the blame on anybody but Larry. It's nobody's fault except for Larry's, unless you knew the abuse was happening and didn't do anything about it. So 
it's not anything I could have said to myself. It's not anything others could have said to me. It's maybe what others could have done with the information they had or Larry just being a different person. (laughs) Right. I think it's sometimes hard, you know, like here we are talking on the phone, you know, completely separate from what was actually happening. I think it's hard to remember what it's like when you're in the situation and, you know, being in totally a different mindset. Right. Because it's so easy for people to say, what were you thinking? And I, the number of times, it's kind of sickening that I heard people say to me, why didn't you come forward earlier? Uh, it's, It's just like, you don't understand. I mean, Larry was, the nation's, the world's best gymnastics doctor. He was world-renowned. He went to the Olympics. If you saw him, you basically knew that you were seeing the best of the best. And maybe his treatments weren't anything you had before because he just was such a higher level of a medical professional. He knew things that nobody else did because he was able to fix things that nobody else could. And we looked at our idols and Carrie Strug was carried off the mat by him. And it's just like, oh, she's my idol. She pushed through so much pain because of just the sport. And Larry helped her. And, and because of that, we trusted him. I mean, he had this undeniable trust from everybody just because of his accomplishments. And his resume was, was packed. And people just ignored the, the discomfort because we thought he's different because he's the best. I mean, we've, we don't have anything else to compare him to because he's just in this world of his own. It is, it's just different with him. And it was okay then. But it's so easy to look back now and think, what were you doing? But if you were in our shoes, it would have played out the same, same way. Right. Were there any rumors that girls were reporting him? Or was there gossip in your gym about, about him? Wow. There was, there was like little, little talks. So I actually broke my back at the same time as one of my, my good, good friends. Um, and we would talk about how it was weird that he required us to wear leotards to his treatment and not like pants and a shirt. Um, we would talk about that, but then we'd be like, oh, it's Larry, my back feels good. So I guess he's doing it right. I mean, it was, it was quickly blown away. There was nothing like I'm telling my mom and I'm going to the police. There was nothing like that. Um, Larry was everybody's friend because he found a way to get to everybody, whether that was um, some girls would be struggling with an eating disorder and he would help them with that. So he would like find our vulnerabilities and just pick away at them. And it was, it was manipulative to everybody because he was able to read everybody. He knew the psychology behind being an abuser and it, it, just seemed to work for him that none of us questioned it. Mm-hmm. You're in the book. You're really complimentary about John Getter, your coach at Twist Stars. Do you yeah. blame him in any way, or could he have, you know, taken a bigger role in in reporting Larry? I John had always respected me, and I always respected John, and he would always get mad at me when I wouldn't tell him that my back was hurting extra bad. And he would always get mad at me if I wasn't being honest about how much pain I was in. And so I know if, if I would have come forward and said, John, I think Larry is, is touching me inappropriately. It would have stopped right then. Um, and so beca- because I had that trust with John, I think he was doing everything right. I, I truly think if it was reported to him, he would have done something about it. Cause I know now he feels, he feels guilty in that type of sense, but 
I truly feel if I would have come forward and said, John, this needs to stop. I'm feeling uncomfortable. He would have stopped it. One of the things that you talk a lot about in your book is that sort of the culture of gymnastics made what Larry did possible. Could you talk a little bit more Mm -hmm. about that? Like, what is it? What is it about gymnastics? So it's actually, it's a very similar, similar culture to kind of the Marines. And the harder you work, the better you are. And the more that you are pushed, the more potential you can obtain. And so I kind of view it as the culture of the sport is led by intimidation and the power of authority. I mean, the sport is obviously very dangerous. It requires you to face a lot of fears. It requires you to put in a lot of hours to be on time, to be focused and driven. And if you're not, it is very, very dangerous. And it's, it's a fine line between making the sport fun and making the sport safe. Um, cause it's easy to just flip around on these squishy mats and, in foam pits and swing on the ropes. But if you want to be competitive, you have to train like a competitor. And so I know a lot of gyms are fighting between the line of, okay, do we want to be champions or do we just want to be competitors? And the culture of the sport is to basically force you into being a champion. Um, you be on time or you have a punishment, you go for the skills that you're scared of, or you are punished. You listen to corrections and you respect your coaches or you are punished. And it's just that kind of, it's hard for people to see on the outside. And I, I do think it does need change. Um, but it's, it's, then I struggle with the, the, the line of understanding the sport still has to be safe. It still has to be competitive. It's not just for fun out of respect for the sport. It is, it is so much more than just flipping around. And so the kind of, the sport kind of designs you to respect authority, but in the past it was respect authority to the point of ignoring your own discomfort. And that's what needs to change. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. It's interesting that you talk about sort of that duality of the sport because there's so many of those dualities in your book, you know, I mean, liking to compete, but also being aware of that incredible pressure that, that ends up happening. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, is there something particular about gymnastics? Because, I mean, certainly there are other sports that have systematic sexual yeah. abuse. So what yeah. about particular about gymnastics do you think it is? I think because our sport is so dependent on what the coach says. I mean, mm. if, the, if the coach says today you're doing bars, you're doing bars that day where it's, Um, and they control every aspect of it. They control your numbers. They control what events you're doing, what your routines look like, what skills you're doing, how your skills look, how they're put together, the combinations you do. It's everything is dictated by the coach. Um, we, we basically don't pick anything. We just do what we're told. And that constant kind of obedience takes a toll on our, on our minds. And, the sport is so much more than just the skills we do. It's the way we look. It's the, it's honestly, it's our height. It's our body build. And sometimes comments get said about like, well, that skill doesn't look good on you. Obviously as a female, that's going to take a toll on me. Um, But I think that's different from other sports because our sport is so ambiguous to the skills that we're doing. I mean, there's no, 
you make a touchdown and it's this many points or you make a hoop and it's this many points. It's you do this skill and the judge might see that your leg is bent and she might not. It's, it's so unclear. And so we take it personally when we're deviations from perfection. And so it's just that constant toll on our minds of disobedience, but then this obedience is not good enough and you are not perfect. And this is how you are not perfect. And that constant kind of battle and that you have with yourself makes you this just very vulnerable person. <laughs> right. And, it, and you start so young. I know. Yeah. So it's, it's all I know is all I've been trained to think my entire life is how can I be perfect? And I've seen it transition into these different aspects of my life of how can I win? How can I be the best? How am I not perfect? Where are my deductions? What can I fix? And it's draining to never think you are good enough. And I know so many women battle with this, even if you aren't a gymnast, but it's just that constant convincing myself, this was enough. You do not have to win at life. The sport is done. You do not have to be a champion always. And I know a lot of gymnasts feel that way. It's something about the sport that just always makes you drive for that unobtainable perfection. But you really love the sport. Oh, I love the sport. <laughs> it's sickening. <laughs> well, I mean, it also, I mean, as we talked about, I mean, it, it brought you a lot of great stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it did. Many, many blessings. Yeah. Yep. So uh, going forward, what kind of changes would you like to see in the sport? And by that, I mean, like, in terms of the athletes and the coaching and the federation, anything that you want to talk about? Yeah. Yeah. So I love this question because as I was writing my book, I was working a full-time desk job um, at a university. And I was like, what kind of impact am I making on the sports culture if I'm not even in it? So this past year I started being a gymnastics coach and I started kind of implementing the ideas that I had of changing the culture and seeing how they resonated with the gymnasts. And, um, one of the main ones is clarifying expectations. It starts there to me. I think if we ask our gymnasts, what are your goals? Like, what, what do you want to achieve out of gymnastics? And if their goals are, I want to be an Olympian, then we're going to warn them, you are going to train like an Olympian then. This is your choice. If this is your goal, I will help you get there. But we have to train like it. It's individualizing the sport to match the girls' goals. So then they're comfortable with the type of coaching that they're getting. I know what the girls that I coach that want a college scholarship, they, they're going to train a little bit harder and my expectations are going to be higher for them than the girls who are just doing it for fun and making it more of a personal dependent type of style of coaching. I've seen great results from because they're still having fun because they're doing what their goals are, but I'm not pushing them to where they don't want to be. And I think that's where the line wasn't before was we were pushing kids who we saw potential in ourselves us as coaches could see this this greatness in them that they weren't pushing themselves to get but unless they want it they're not going to get it and kind of trying to figure out which girls want it which girls are willing to go for it is a huge difference huge difference right and and again going back to your book you talk a lot about the recruiting process and how difficult you yeah. thought that was what kind of changes can you imagine in that oh I think we need to stop recruiting at, a, at such a young age. I shouldn't have been getting questionnaires as an eighth grader. I mean, how, how was I supposed to know um, what I was looking for six years down the road? 
I mean, it was just, it's just, it's impossible. And at the number of girls that I have seen commit somewhere and then decommit because they realized later in high school, that's not what they wanted, but then they're stuck because none of the bigger schools that they would have wanted to go to have any scholarships left because they committed them in seventh grade. And, and it's, it takes a toll on our mentality when we are that young, when we are fighting for something we don't even know the value of. I mean, I did not know the value of a full ride scholarship when I was a freshman in high school. I didn't right. care. I was college. <laughs> I, I didn't know. But now I'm like, oh my goodness. I was fighting for so much money as a freshman. I mean, it was just, it's unbelievable to expect that of little girls. And I hate the wearing the numbers on our back, like we're cattle or farm animals at a state fair where nobody knows our names. They just know our number and our gymnastics skills. I don't know how that would change, but I think it needs to. And I, and I know this has kind of started becoming more of a thing, but I think the college coaches should come watch us in practice more than they come and watch us at meet. Because the way we compete is different than the way we, that we train. It's, it's so hard to conclude, draw a conclusion about somebody's potential just from a 30-second routine. Where if you watch them for a five-hour practice, you're going to be able to have a better idea of their work ethic, their passion for the sport, their personality, um, along with their skills as a gymnast and their consistency because you see them do more than one routine. So I think that needs to be more of a priority than their competitions because we can look up scores to meet anytime. You can't look up how they train. And that says so much more about a person if the colleges cared about us as people instead of just gymnasts. Watching us practice shows more attention to that than to our skills. You're also bringing up again the sort of that difficult balance of competing and winning versus you know, like sort of the, the process of being an athlete. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can never tell how much, how many hours a girl puts in when you watch her beam routine and she falls. You don't know that she's been doing that still a hundred times a day for the past eight weeks because she fell. And you may not know that a girl who sticks her vault and wins hadn't done that vault in three weeks because she's had a mental block. I mean, you can never tell the background story and it's unfair that it comes down to 30 seconds, but it's, it's sad that that's the way it is, and that's what people draw their conclusions on us from, is those 30-second routines. Well, you've been out of the sport for a couple of years, and Larry was arrested a couple of years ago. You've had back surgery. You have a regular job. <laughs> you're engaged. What are you thinking about <laughs> about these days? Oh, my gosh, so much. I think 2019 is going to be a huge year. Um, I think with the wedding and then with the book coming out, I – have so much kind of bottled up in me ready to explode of excitement of just wanting to inspire people, wanting to make people's lives easier and better and empowering women to come forward and use their voice. And it's been hard seeing all the news stories lately. I mean, it's just this constant battle that so many women are fighting. It's not just the survivors of Larry that so many can relate to my story. And I think the future holds for me is always driving to inspire at least one to empower at least one and and from there I hope it grows I don't, I don't know maybe I'm I know my fiance has kind of been encouraging me he's like Rachel let's let's start you a camp let's have you travel around and talk to these women who are in sports and empower them and help them define that line so this doesn't happen again and he, he's been very amazing <laughs> through all this 
So maybe it does turn into a camp. Maybe I do I do motivational speaking and I and I kind of talk to young women athletes and try and, and correct this this mental health issue that accompanies difficult sports like gymnastics of you are enough. I know the sport tells you you're not, but you are, and this is how. And trying to explain that to women at a young age so they don't have to battle it at 24, 25 like I am. <laughs> but I have no idea what the future holds. I just, I hope that it's as big as what my dreams and goals are. You talked about inspiring you know, young athletes, young gymnasts, and also, um, you know, other women. Do you have advice for gymnasts, for parents of gymnasts? Oh, my gosh. I know I, I put a little blurb in my, in my book, and it's, I have so much that I want to say to coaches, to parents, to those gymnasts, to retired gymnasts. Um, but I think the main thing that it, I know that because I've had to battle it with it the most is that you that you are enough idea um that those deviations from perfection don't matter anymore the sport is done you are not always trying to strive for that perfect 10 life is so much more than trying to be perfect um and i know that since that's the biggest battle for me i I imagine it's the biggest battle for other people as well so just trying to constantly tell parents you are enough I know coaching or being a parent of a gymnast is hard (laughs) driving it, driving the hours to get to the gym that you want to train at and sitting there for five hours a day and paying for the leotards, going to the meets, watching your little girl push, push through so much pain and frustration, but you are enough. Like just reminding them that and reminding the gymnasts that are still gymnasts, you are enough because you didn't get the college scholarship you want does not mean that that's where you were supposed to be. You are enough. There's a plan. And then again, to the gymnasts who are retired and who are in the same shoes that I am, you are enough. You don't have to win at life. (laughs) There is no national championship for your work. I mean, it's just, you don't always have to be the best. That is huge. I think is just reminding them that they are good enough. It's just, it's, I could go on for days talking about it because it's such a hard battle and, so easy to say and so much harder to do, but I think that's my biggest piece of advice is just to love yourself first and not and not continue those just unreal expectations of perfection throughout your life. And how are you managing that for yourself right now? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, again, easier said than done. Um, but it starts with that loving yourself, and it and I'm so blessed to have such outstanding people surrounding me that make it possible. Um, that remind me that rage, it's okay that <laughs> this is happening. <laughs> it's okay that you didn't get the most things done at work today. Um, so I think surrounding myself with these outstanding people is the first step and having people constantly remind me that you are enough. <laughs> you're doing great is is very, very helpful. It's obviously an everyday challenge. I mean, even it comes down to my appearance. Um, I have to look good all the time because for gymnastics, I always had to be super skinny and I had to look good and wear this makeup for college and these glitter on my face and have these matching bow ribbons and, and my hair. And so it's just kind of accepting that it's okay to not wear makeup every now and then. And it's okay to go a day without brushing your hair. It's, it's human. <laughs> so just trying to do those little baby steps of you don't have to be perfect every day. Um, 
it's huge and it's hard and it's so much easier said than done, but you have to try and do it every day. Right. In your book, you talk a lot about being identified completely as a gymnast. So how do you identify mm-hmm. with yourself right now? I mean, you talked a little bit about coaching and having a job, but what else? So I actually am tr- still trying to separate myself from the sport. It's a lot different coaching it. Um, I love coaching it. It's where my passion is. But I even notice myself wearing my Minnesota gymnastics gear as a coach. So like my t-shirts that say Minnesota gymnast, because I'm, I feel more, I feel greater in those clothes than I do in just regular athletic clothes, because it, it's saying something about my identity and about my talent and accomplishments. I mean, it's written on my shirt, Minnesota gymnast, and I know I get much more respect wearing those clothes than I do wearing normal clothes. And so I've tried to separate myself from that and trying to form an identity without wearing those things or without having the maroon and gold shoes or talking about who I was as a, as a gymnast in the past. It's more defining who I am now, not being a gymnast and being okay with that. And will coaching satisfy that for you? It, it is right now. It is. I was, it's so hard to separate from a sport that you did for 20 some years and putting my passion for the sport into the girls that I'm coaching is satisfying enough. Um, my fiance has done a great job at making me pour myself into different things. So this summer we picked up golf and maybe we'll try that. And last summer we picked up tennis. And so he's just always trying to make me put my love for competing someplace else. It does not have to be in gymnastics. And so he's doing a great job at trying to make me realize, Rachel, you are so athletically talented in other things other than gymnastics. Don't let one sport define your athleticism. And so we're working on that, but so far coaching is satisfying my drive and passion and love for the sport of gymnastics without it being the full identity of me. I, I love that. That was one of my questions is, you know, like, how are you getting those competitive yayas now that you're not competing? <laughs> <laughs> I am. That's so funny. And the, the reason I love competing is because I love accomplishing goals. So every meet, I would have a goal of either getting this specific score on this event or placing like this in, on all around that type of thing or qualifying to the next meet by getting this score. So I always had a goal for each meet and that is the goals have stayed. So they've just changed context. Obviously they're not about gymnastics, but um, so when my sister-in-law said, make this a book, my goal was, well, I'm going to finish it in a month. And I finished it in two weeks and finished writing the whole book in two weeks. So it's just, <laughs> so it's like those little mini accomplishments where I'm like, I did better than what my goal was. I get the same satisfaction from competing um, it's like I won because uh, I I beat myself right. type thing. How do you manage your goals? I mean, you mentioned a vision board earlier, but like what else yeah. are you doing? Do you, how do you keep track of them? You know, sort of maybe advice for listeners. <laughs> yeah. So as an athlete, I think my goals are always a little bit ingrained in my head. They're what I think about when I wake up. They're what I think about right before I fall asleep. They are constantly reminded um, I'm constantly reminding me of myself of what can I do to obtain this goal today, but they are written down multiple different places. <laughs> um, I think every time I think of a new goal, I write it down somewhere just because I feel like if it's on paper, then I've committed to it. Um, I have to do it then. And so the, obviously I have my vision board that I look at every day. Um, 
and I've got them written down places, but I think the place that they stick out the most is eating away at my head of, you haven't accomplished this yet, you need to get moving. Um, and having that mindset of constantly striving to obtain those is both overwhelming, but it also is motivating at the same time. Right. Well, I'd love to ask you about uh, staying physically fit now and sort yeah. of uh, how was how was that transition into non-athletic life? And so what are you doing now? <laughs> oh, my gosh, the transition was horrible. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> um, yeah, I Going from working out five hours a day and people requiring you to be there. I mean, I didn't have a choice. It was you had to be at lifts, you had to be at yoga, you had to be at workout. Um, people were always telling me what to do. And in turn, I was just naturally staying in shape. I got to eat whatever I wanted, and I stayed this tiny little stick person. Um, and then you're done. You, you salute at your last meet, and nobody's telling you what to do anymore. Nobody's making you work out. There's no requirements of lifting or yoga, and you have to figure it out for yourself. And at that point, I realized just how much and expensive it is to work out. <laughs> and Nobody was paying for it anymore. Nobody was buying me a private yoga instructor. Nobody was hiring a nutritionist for me. Um, and it was a huge slap in the face of realizing, okay, you're on your own now. What are you going to do so you can keep eating the way that you want to eat um, but not gain 100 pounds? And so um, it was a struggle, and it still is a struggle because my mind has seen what I look like when I am in my best shape possible, and since I'm always striving perfect for perfection, I expect myself to look that way. Um, but I'm not training five hours a day anymore. There is no nutritionist. There's nobody cooking for me. Um, it's all on my own. And so that's been hard. It's taken a little bit of a toll on my self-confidence, as I'm sure a lot of gymnast experience when they're done, is that now you're, you're basically a normal person. You're going to look normal. You're not going to have 12-pack abs and shoulders that go up to your ears because they're so muscular. Um, it's it's different and kind of accepting the way my body looks now is, is a challenge, but we are working through it. And, um, I get a lot of happiness when I am coaching because if they have conditioning, I'll do it with them. Like it's, it's almost like I am forcing myself to work out by doing what I am requiring my gymnast to do. And my rule of thumb is if I can't do it, I don't expect you to do it. And so I'm pushing myself, to do these hard conditioning lists because I'm expecting my little gymnast to do them. And that's been fun. Um, it's this kind of new way that I force myself to work out because they expect me to work out with them. Um, but it's hard. It's a hard transition as I'm sure it is for many, many athletes. Excellent. And do you, how do you stay <laughs> mentally strong? Oh, <laughs> I, I would love to say that I, I am mentally strong, but it's, it's definitely a process. Um, it's because of my amazing family that I am happy because <laughs> going through all this is, is obviously taken a big toll on me and it, it put me in some deep holes and um, some, some dark valleys and it, and I still have hard days. There's, there's no doubt about it. Some days I can't get out of bed. It's just, it seems like everything is just pointless that day and um, I have no purpose. And so it's, it's the people around me have made the biggest impact um, reminding me, Rachel, like you are inspiring people every day that you get out of bed. You are inspiring me and like using examples and they encourage me and, and um, that self-care type thing where I am addicted to Bath and Body Works candles and Starbucks. And so some days my 
amazing fiance will come home with a Starbucks and just say, I hope this makes your day a little brighter and better. And he knows that brings me extreme happiness. And so it's the little things that make the mental health good, but it's definitely not a consistent thing yet. I think kind of that transition out of gymnastics took a toll. And then along with it, this whole trial and case has taken a toll. And I'd love to say I have good mental health, but being completely honest and open, it's it's not quite there yet, but it has gotten so much better than what it was. Well, I'm super impressed that you have written the book, that you are speaking <laughs> out. I think that's so important. And as I said, I'm sure more than one person will be inspired by reading that. <laughs> can you, uh, as we're wrapping up, just talk about where we can find the book and when we can find it? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So um, I'm actually super excited. It comes out April 12th. Um, it is available, I believe, in Barnes & Noble, on Amazon, and if you are aware, uh, Books A Million as well. It's also available through my publisher, which is Rauman & Littlefield. It's a hardcover book. We are talking about um, doing like ebooks, which should be coming out pretty soon, and all that good stuff, but I'm really, really excited for people to read it, and like you said, I hope it inspires more than just one. That would obviously bring me a lot of purpose and make my mental health better knowing that one person was impacted by my book. Well, great. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us to talk about your new book, Abused. As you said, it comes out in April, and it's definitely, definitely worth reading for the insight into being a competitive gymnast and also for the positive message about forgiveness and gaining something from everything that happens. I really appreciate you being here. I really appreciate you having me. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. A really warm thank you to Rachel Haynes for telling her story on the podcast. I wish her great success with the book, and I'm super excited to see how it goes. Hear Her Sports is focused on increasing listenership in 2019, so tell your friends about the podcast or about one interesting little tidbit you learned. Every week I learn something new myself talking to these wonderful athletes. Please subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, subscribe to the Hear Her Sports newsletter, or donate on hearhersports.com. Our theme music is by the band Goldmines, our logo by Agnes Studio. And keep listening. I'll be back in two weeks. Sports stars. They're like superheroes. But they're actually real. Which is why we've made a podcast about them. You see... They've all got a story. But too many of these stories were cut short. Kobe Bryant. Payne Stewart. Flo jo, Phil Hughes. Justin Fashionew. We're writing episodes about all of them. And sadly, many more. Death of a Sports Star. A new series from Crowd Network.